Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Well, good to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, we were uh, at the AIER um, mansion last weekend, I think. Yes. And we discussed the possibility of, of having a conversation about foreign policy and realism and you bringing your expertise to the table. So I'm glad that we found a time when you're in D.C. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. It's going to be, a, I think, a fun conversation. Um, and I just saw this uh, Lex Friedman conversation that went on for seven hours. So I thought we'd go for eight or nine. We'll see. Absolutely. I want I to break any record like that. I don't know. I don't know how a human does that. (laughs) Well, I I will tell you, uh, I I used to teach three-hour-long graduate classes, and uh, if the students didn't uh, warn me uh, about the need for a break, I could keep going. Yeah. Uh, Fortunately, my my, uh, teaching evaluations were decent, so it wasn't as if I was oblivious. So they they liked the three hours. (laughs) I guess, I guess. Or they paid for it, so they had to... Well, we would hope there would be some consumerism still in higher ed that they actually wanted what they're paid for, what they're paying for. So that's actually like um, give people a sense for. So you became the president of the American Institute for Economic Research in March, January, January January of this year. Yep. Okay. So so a little less than a year. Yeah. And um, you were an academic and you served in the Navy and you fought in Afghanistan. Give us give us a little bit of your history. Sure. A, a big part of it is is that I, I was an academic for most of my career, uh, taught at a, a variety of places like people usually do in the academic market, but ultimately landed at Texas State University, where I received tenure. Taught the suite of international relations courses, um, including courses on U.S. foreign policy, security studies, ethics and international relations. But I also taught a specialty course up at UT Austin at the LBJ School on terrorism and counterterrorism, which was apropos given my experience in uniform, including in Afghanistan, but also, you know, my civilian expertise. Uh, so it was a good marriage. But then uh, about eight years ago, I was uh, recruited to come work here in D.C., uh, which was a hard, hard decision since I loved being an academic, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but uh, worked out really well. I, I loved come out, coming up here. And I've done a, wor- a lot of work helping tr- uh, try to institutionalize realism and restraint here in Washington, uh, you know, to build the ideas and help support the people and institutions that I think need to challenge the the blobby status quo foreign policy establishment. Uh, and uh, you want to talk about a dead consensus. Yeah. Uh, that's the one we should be focused on, uh, not fusionism, but uh, the kind of foreign policy primacist establishment. We've had uh, Kelly Vlahos on the show, and she calls it the blob. Yeah. I mean, again, I I think I sometimes worry about using that term because I am sensitive to the idea that we want to be respectful of our our intellectual adversaries. Yeah. Uh, And uh, it drives me crazy when people use the I word to describe what is really a long tradition of realism and restraint that goes all the way back to the founders. Yeah. And and clearly, uh, you know, isolationism is a slander, right? It's a pejorative only used by people who oppose, uh, you know, having a broader conversation about what America's role in the world should be. And people who subscribe to realism and restraint aren't talking about disengaging from the world, sticking their head in the sand or isolating ourselves. It's just about being more prudential in how we go about securing ourselves and advancing America's national interests. And I think the fact that they've had to use you know, the I word so often is is because of the fact that uh, they don't want to necessarily have to have the conversation about basic assumptions and, and so forth, especially because, you know, it, it's like in any intellectual or political movement, right? A, a lot of people subscribe to the bromides and, and, and you know, mutter the, uh, the chants like they're yeah. at church. But, right, right. you know, you start poking holes in some of those things. And quickly it falls apart. And so a lot of people just resort to those slanders. But I, I so I try to stay away from it. Again, I start with, you know, talk about the blob. But really, it's a it's a primacist approach to grand strategy in American foreign policy. And uh, that could be either good or bad. I think primacy or liberal, you know, he- hegemonialism is another word that's used in the academic literature on this. It's a, it's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. But, you know, the, the basic, you know, premises of what we've been doing over the last 20 to 30 years is, is what Washington subscribes to. And there is a, uh, you know, to their credit for, you know, I wish, I wish that restraint had such a deep, uh, you know, bench of scholars and people subscribing to a particular worldview, but that's what we have here in Washington. The problem is, 
is that it actually is not working at making us safer or more secure or more prosperous. Uh, and, and so that's why we challenge it, yeah. not because it's necessarily the establishment. I liked when we had a free trade establishment mm-hmm. and there were lots of people whose, whose depth of knowledge about free trade was pretty thin, but at least they were saying the right chance. Now we're seeing even challenges to that. So again, it's not that there is an establishment per se that's bad. It's that the establishment is wrong for the American people. Yeah. And there's, um, you know, as, as a student of public choice economics, uh, the incentives are all aligned where, um, I mean, I, I suppose this is a pejorative, but I love to use the phrase military industrial complex. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's an economy of interests that align that always find them supporting the next big war. And it gets into, um, you know, the critique of nation building. And I think about it as an economist and mm-hmm. or specifically a Hayekian economist. There's a fatal conceit and a sense that you can sort of centrally plan based on some goal, some ideal, how the rest of the world is going to govern itself and live its life. Yeah, the sense that you could actually order the world as you see fit. Yeah. Um, and again, I think that that is, is an important part of the critique that comes from realism and restraint. One thing I'd be hesitant to, to do is to is to ascribe the kind of pecuniary interest to most of the people who actually subscribe to the establishment's view of primacy. Mm-hmm. I think it's a mix, right? There are some people uh, where they believe all good things go together. They happen to be getting wealthy uh, as part of the military industrial complex or mm-hmm. they get prestige jobs, things like that. Um, but it also goes along with what they believe is necessary to secure the United States or a broader set of interests that they believe in. Um, it's it's just awfully, uh, you, you know, it, it's awful nice that it fits together so well, though. Yeah, right? and, yeah. and sometimes you want to question whether that's the case. But there are, for, there are others, for example, I, I, that, you know, it's not as, as kind of uh, a simple a public choice story. It's more of, a, you know, in some ways, a, a kind of constructivist story about the power of ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, that's also, a, a, you know, a very, I think, classical liberal view, the notion that ideas matter. Um, they don't all, you know, they don't always win. Um, you know, classical liberals can certainly tell us, tell people that, right? Um, sometimes when they go against the forces of, you know, entrenched interests and uh, structural, pro- you know, challenges, you know, the best ideas don't always win. Uh, but the fact is, there are people who honestly hold these ideas. And I think we should be generous in that way, because they should also be generous. We would want them to have the same kind of generosity to say, like, look, people who disagree with their views about about Ukraine, it doesn't mean that people are carrying water for, for people we find loathsome. It's just right. that we don't think that these are necessary for the United States to pursue. And oftentimes nowadays, you just see a lot of, of shouting, um, you know, you, you know, people like Rand Paul, Senator Paul, have suffered these slings and arrows that are really quite unfair. Right. Uh, I mean, it's also a bizarre world when people can claim that people who are saying we need to do what's best for America, they're the ones people are calling traitors. Right. I mean, right. that's bizarre. Right. right. Because you don't want to support X, Y, Z country and everything that they want to do and write a blank check for them. Yeah. So, again, I mean, I think we're being, you know, probably even starting a little too defensive because, look, realism and restraint is a very positive argument for what's necessary for us to do and also a realistic one it, it is consistent with the nature of the international system and for those of us who are classical liberal and our kind of general political philosophy realism is also consistent with that type of worldview as long as you don't push it too far right realism and anarcho-capitalism are not consistent but realism and a proper classical liberalism are and we saw that in the founders many of the founders and in the hundred years after the founding, in terms of what guided a largely classical liberal polity, would you would you call George Washington and his famous warning against entangling alliances? Is this a realist point of view? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly because, and, and this may give some classical liberals pause. Uh, those those who celebrate uh, like Aaron Burr's birthday or something, uh, <laughs> which is that. Uh, those guys. Yeah, those guys, uh, which is that it, it's, uh, you know, it, Hamilton has a, has a role to play in the, the, the writing of the farewell address that sure. you reference. Uh, but all, wa- President Washington is ultimately responsible for it. He delivers it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a fantastic, I think, encapsulation. The one thing that Hamilton did right, I'll even concede that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's a, it's a great encapsulation of of a, a realist view that is compatible with our, you know, essentially classical liberal worldview as a whole, right? Yeah. And I think a big part of it is that, look, in, in this worldview, 
the state has a proper role to play, right? The, the state should be limited. Uh, it should have a very narrow set of, of jobs that it is meant to do, which is largely protecting the property rights of Americans and our collective uh, you know, territorial integrity. Um, and it needs to do that well. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what that means and how you pursue that is going to be different depending a lot on the context. And, and this is where I would be different than some others probably that are allies in that I don't identify as a non-interventionist or as anti-war. I identify as being a realist and a restrainer, uh, but a big part of that restraint comes from the fact that the environmental conditions uh, and how we would define the national interests mean that we can be restrained. Uh, and in many ways, we don't, we, we can be against interventions because of the particular context of our day. And so I would say that realism would not tell us that we should always be restrained in our approach to foreign policy, unless restraint just means prudentialism, which mm -hmm. of course it should always be. But if restraint means something more, it means like a commitment like Washington to avoiding the type of entangling alliances. Now, again, he didn't use that term. It's Jefferson. But the, the kind of uh, those alliances that are, aren't consistent, that are, that are permanent, we should, we should, you know, you may counsel that. And you may counsel the other kind of pillar of, uh, you know, kind of Washington's great rule, if you will, of, of a kind of uh, reticence to intervene, particularly at the, back then in the old world contest. Because, but it was grounded in this notion that that's not good for the United States, particularly in the moment they were in. And I think that uh, there are some moments in which uh, a different approach to grand strategy would be necessary to secure the state, even a classical liberal state. Now, there are some foreign policies or grand strategies that simply would be incompatible with classical liberalism, period. Um, you know, so, for example, um, uh, uh, there are there are some means that that would simply be inconsistent and we would be loath to adopt them. Uh, now, one thing we've understood from some of the academic literature on some of those means is that they don't work either. So it's that's kind of nice that all good things go together, although we should be very careful when that's the case. But in the case of like strategic bombing or quote unquote strategic bombing, or in the case of terrorism, uh, you know, when you're specifically targeting innocent civilian non-combatants, those don't tend to actually work. So there's a lot of academic literature on how strategic bombing fails and also how uh, terrorism defined the way I just did, that also fails at meeting your ultimate ends. Um, and so uh, but those would be inconsistent, I think, with a, a classical liberal approach. But back to kind of realism and restraint. I mean, one of the reasons why it was important uh, at the founding to adopt that uh, is because of America's particular geostrategic position at the time. Uh, the fact that uh, it was very difficult um, for European powers to project power successfully here in the Americas. Uh, and also, for most of that period, the British Navy, uh, the British government's interests and ours were coterminous when it came to keeping out other European powers from the New World. Uh, and so it came together in a nice way. And, and look, the, the fact is, is that that worked for America for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, now, I would, I would not say, for example, that one should be against having alliances at any time in any place. We needed the alliance with France at the beginning of our country's history. It would have been hard to imagine us defeating the British, uh, or at least as quickly in the way we did, uh, without them. But Washington was also smart enough to know that alliances are means to ends. And unfortunately, people like Biden talk about sacred alliances, you know, making it theological and therefore a sin if you violate it. Whereas Washington threw over the French alliance almost uh, as, as, you know, as quickly as our country gained its independence. I mean, you know, you see in the in the 1790s where uh, we are very quickly jettisoned that commitment. Uh, in fact, the, there were lots of people uh, that were arguing against this, saying, look, we have to keep this commitment. We have to support the French. Uh, but Washington and Hamilton prudently resisted that and set us on a course that was quite different than one in which we would be intervening and taking sides in European affairs. And there's a lot of great counsel to Washington, uh, you know, Washington's farewell, talking about it like, don't get too permanently in love with any country, but also don't have enmity uh, that's so deeply interwoven that you can't think rationally. Yeah. And our foreign policy is almost the opposite today, right? Where we have these deep-seated attachments and special relationships, sacred uh, commitments, 
Uh, and then we have the you know other countries that seem to be permanent enemies, regardless of how the international system changes. And that's just not a wise approach, right? You have to be flexible and prudent in foreign policy, uh, particularly because of the fact that the nature of, of the threat environment and the nature of the strategic environment changes. And I think that the success of a country is being able to um, you know, to pivot in a way that's prudential to, again, in the service of protecting our country here at home. And so we, you could argue that, um, you know, during World War II, we aligned ourselves with Uncle Joe Stalin, obviously a very bad guy. And if you want to do the kind of Manichaean good guy, bad guy, you know, pretty seems to fit pretty well when it comes to that era. And we, but we, but as opposed to being, you know, kind of overly idealistic about it, uh, the alliance with, with the temporary alliance with the Soviet Union allowed us to defeat what we considered to be a much more dangerous strategic uh, adversary in uh, Hitler's uh, Nazi Germany. Um, but again, we very quickly pivoted out of that, mostly because the nature of the international system changed, right? Uh, and then we helped set up an alliance system that at that time made sense. But the idea that what was set up in the late 1940s and 1950s is something that has to continue for all time, regardless of changes in the nature of the international environment, would be the opposite of a kind of realistic approach, the opposite of Washington's counsel against permanent peacetime alliances. And that's why I think that we ought to hearken back to some of those guys like George Washington, John Quincy Adams, who has a fantastic essay uh, or, or address he gave on July 4th, 1821, not far from here. Uh, these are great councils, and they aren't just time-specific in one sense, uh, but it doesn't, again, mean that, uh, that we want to be slavish towards that council when you need to, right? So, right. Um, and that's why I think a big part, uh, you know, you talked about kind of my past a little bit at the beginning. Uh, you know, I graduated from college or went to college and graduated from college as the world was changing quite dr dramatically, and I'm sitting in an intro to IR class in the fall of 1989 and the world is changing, you know, in that period I'm in college. And, you know, I think the smart thing for America to do, uh, at least it was smart for me, I thought was, was to, Hey, like, let's think about how this changed world should affect how we think about America's role in it. And instead, after the cold war, you know, we, we didn't shift in the way that we could have, um, in some ways we, we, we put our approach on steroids. Um, and as as the as we knew more about what that post Cold War world was going to look like, American foreign policy, I don't think adapted to this changed environment. And so even if you thought, you know, that look, the Cold War demanded a, a system of alliances, a large permanent, uh, you know, standing army, and a far flung set of of bases and commitments around the world, that. 1989, 1991, that period should have caused us to have a reassessment. And it didn't in some ways and didn't others. The, the way it did is that people thought, well, well, look, now we're the unipolar power. We could actually, uh, in a way, try to you know, create heaven on earth, right? We could have like the responsibility to protect document. We could go against rogue nations. Uh, we could try to end terrorism, right? The global war on terror, right? It's not against Al Qaeda; it's against terrorism as a means, right? These types of things were, uh, you know, we we just, I I, I think that, uh, in a way, our unipolarity short circuited our brains, and so we stopped thinking as prudentially. In some ways, because the costs of making mistakes were less in a in a historic sense, even though they became grave for us, you know, 7,000 Americans die, uh, you know, over 58,000 are, are wounded, uh, almost a million benefits claims from the global war on terror era. You know, those are real costs and we spent billions, you know, trillions, right? Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. I still think there's a um, public choice, or maybe I'll just invoke Ronald Reagan, like um, uh, 
I realize that there are substantial philosophical belief sets that drive uh, foreign policy, just like economic policy or or the role of government. But um, you know, I'll butcher Ronald Reagan, but he said there's nothing so permanent as a government program. Right. And to unwind the apparatus of the Cold War was probably practically difficult, if not impossible, simply because you had all of those interests and all of that money flowing in that direction. So they're like, what do we do with these tools? Right. We're seeing this happen on COVID right now, by the way. Right. Is all of these tools that that we use to to foolishly and tragically lock down the economy and all that, the Biden administration has now released a, a, a vision for the future that just doubles down on all that apparatus. And I feel... Like with foreign policy, like if, if we have these toys, we're going to use them. And if we don't have a legitimate reason to use them, we're going to use them anyway, and we're going to find a way. Yeah, and I, and I think that's and, why— And by the way, I'm, I'm probably more of a, a non-interventionist, although I'm a little schizophrenic about it because my non-interventionism is, is almost always defended with practical arguments about— what can't work when it comes to the, these more grandiose right. neoconservative nation-building arguments. There's, there's a, a very clear, demonstrable proof that these ideas don't work in practice and they make America less safe. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, again, um, I think for American realists and restrainers, right, uh, and we can go into this a little bit more, non-interventionism and that look very similar because there are very few cases where a realist in America in this context we're in would advocate for intervention. Yeah. But if you were a Prussian in the 1860s, as a realist, you might counsel something very differently because of the nature of the threat environment, right? You're on the North European plane. You have, you know, big states on both all sides of you. And you may need to have alliances. You may need to do things like fight the war in 1864 and 1868, six and 1870, right? Those may be necessary to secure yourself in that dangerous environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least you wouldn't rule that out, right, on prudential grounds. Um, and that's very different than, say, being an American. So one of the reasons why uh, we should practice restraint today well, you know, a functionally anti-interventionism today um, is because of the kind of fundamental realities and constraints of the international system. So let me kind of roll through those a bit. And this is why I have no brief or no fight with anti-interventionists when it comes to America today. And so it's a somewhat academic argument because, right. look, we, you know, one of the great uh, disservices to the American conversation on on America's role in the world is this notion that the world is, you know, smaller and um, uh, and that uh, these boundaries and these things like the oceans don't matter as much. They still matter a lot. Right. We have two big moats between us and the rest of the world. That is a substantial thing. Um, and, and yeah, the world is smaller in some ways, but. You know, try moving men and material across vast distances, uh, especially water, because it's very difficult to conceal yourself, right, on the surface of the of the ocean. It's hard to to project power across large bodies of water. This is something that John Mearsheimer at the University of Chicago talks about. He talks about the stopping power of water. Well, in some ways, it's the stopping power of the water, but as other people have said, it's the stopping power of navies, right? So, if the Chinese are going to do the million man swim, right, they're going to do the Chinese armada, uh, you know. How do they get from there to here, right? Even leaving aside nuclear weapons and nuclear deterrence, like imagine they actually want to invade. It's like Red Dawn 2, right? They want to take over the Americas using physical power, just like we've seen historically for, for centuries, right? How do they get all the men and material across that body of water, right? If you have a strong Navy, you have a strong subsurface fleet, uh, you, have an air, you have air power, you could be hitting those things like ducks on a pond, and it makes it very difficult to do that. That still matters. It's easier for, say, China to fight against Vietnam than it would be to fight us over here. It's just really hard. So projection power is hard. Two, nuclear weapons, right? This is a major change in the nature of international politics. And in some ways, I'm not even sure we've reconciled it because in effect, it almost obviates some of the traditional geostrategic concerns about the balance of power. Right. So if imagine if one power could amalgamate a lot of power in Eurasia, which has been a traditional American worry, there's still the question of how they actually could harm America's territorial integrity, because as long as you meet the criteria for, for nuclear deterrence, it makes it extremely risky for anyone to test that. 
And as long as you have the gumption to actually make the threat and have the capability and, and be willing to carry it out, other states are going to think twice. You know, so that that puts a lot less pressure on us because that nuclear, you know, it basically guarantees our territorial integrity. So why do we have to be fighting abroad in many cases like states have historically if your territorial integrity is essentially assured? And then even leave, even if we just forgot about the nuclear revolution mattering, the fact is, is that we have the world's strongest army. We have the world's strongest Navy. We have a strong Air Force and, and, and the Marines and the Navy have air power. That's that's quite impressive. So our conventional forces are also you know highly valuable to deter and defend and would make other countries think twice. And then you add into that things like the fact that the Eurasian balance of power that we've traditionally been concerned about is fractured. Uh, the idea, for example, especially after this experience in Ukraine, that Russia could take over Western Europe, amalgamate all that power and that pr put pressure on the Americas is absurd. They couldn't even project power, you know, all the way to Kiev or Kiev, right? Let alone like to Berlin, Paris, the UK, and then what? The shores of, you know, Long Island. It's absurd, isn't it? Um, and then when you think about the fact that, uh, you know, China and Russia would have to bandwagon together when they have natural reasons to want to balance each other. Yeah. Uh, and the difficulty that China would have escaping the first island chain, let alone having to deal with Russia and its back door. I mean, the, again, the balance of power is pretty robust. And, and what that means fundamentally is that the United States is a lot safer than you would think if you're reading the, you know, the op-ed pages of your, of your newspaper that's basically, you know, like Chicken Little always worried that the sky is falling. We're a lot safer. Now, I think that where your head probably goes is, well, if the reality of the world is that we're a lot safer than we say, then there must be entrenched interests that are pushing this threat inflation. And I would say, sure, I think there are some. Uh, not only here at, at, at home, but actually abroad, right? There are foreign countries that are trying to play in the American domestic political scene to promote the idea that the United States needs to be abroad. It makes sense. It's rational. Why wouldn't they, right? Like, why wouldn't Germany want a free ride on American taxpayers, right? It makes a lot of sense from their perspective. They, they, they're almost practicing a higher realism than we are here, right? So I, I, they're, I get They're pretty them. much free riding on yeah. this, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. But again, back to the ideas. A big part of it isn't necessarily the pecuniary interests. It's that people have convinced themselves about a set of assumptions about the need for the United States to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Either because this notion that we're not safe unless the rest of the world is democratic, or we're not safe because there's always someone out there that would do us harm and could easily do it. But regardless, the set of assumptions leads many people without a pecuniary interest to believe that we're that we're not as safe as we actually are. But the reality is, is that there's just massive threat inflation for whatever reason, massive threat inflation out there. And again, I'm a realist. I think power matters. I think that the anarchic nature of the international system means that you always have to be wary for your security. Why I believe you have to have a strong military. Does it need to be at the levels we're at now, 800 plus billion dollars a year? No, but we should have a strong military, especially when it comes to nuclear power, naval power. But do we need to be doing all the stuff that we're doing around the world in order to make us safe? Absolutely not. Like think about Syria. It just does not matter who's running Syria. It is not going to affect the United States. And even if there were, even in the case of ISIS, which again, like if it, it completely fair for actors in the region to want to whack ISIS. But the fact is, is they have their own incentives to do that, whether it's the Kurds, the Syrians, the uh, Iraqis, the Iranians, right? There are a lot of actors that have an interest in, in doing that. And the United States should want to buck pass more. Like that's, and this goes to your German question, right? The Germans want to pass the buck on trying to provide for German security. It makes sense in, in a lot of ways. And so do other countries. Well, why are we going to be Uncle Sucker, right? Why aren't we adopting a policy that's more like, look, Calvin Coolidge said that if you have 10 problems coming down the road, nine of them are going to be in the ditch before you get there. Have an approach like that in foreign policy where, look, um, if the if the biggest problem in the world is, say, Serbia, like some claimed it was in the 90s, let Germany and France and Italy and other regional actors handle that. Now, when Serbia is a threat to the Eurasian balance of power, then pick up the phone and call nine one one. But that call's never coming. Yeah. So as a non, I'm gonna I'm gonna 
float a theory that I have that's half-baked, and you're a realist, and, and I'm a libertarian, non-interventionist, who focuses primarily on economic policy right. and economic freedom and all of the benefits that come from that. Um, this past summer, um, uh, Terry, my wife, and I were speaking um, throughout Eastern Europe, former Soviet bloc country, countries mm-hmm. primarily. And of course, as the American, they're like, what are you going to do to help me? It, as friends, not right. as, because I don't, I don't represent the government, hopefully. Um, and my argument to them was that the, the best thing you can do is become very free and very strong and grow the hell out of your economy. And for, f- please, God, develop um, enough resources that you aren't completely unilaterally disarmed when it comes to energy policy. Or, or any type of thing, right? Anything. So, you could, so, for example, making yourself a porcupine is underrated as, a, as an approach to international relations. But it also means trying not to become too dependent on other states. Now, that for classical liberals, that can cut both ways, right? Because one of the advantages of the international um, economy uh, is that you can um, is that you can specialize uh, and you can take advantage of comparative advantage, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and so if you have the you know if you have a, a system in which you specialize. Uh, you know, that could make you dependent on others and that can be dangerous, right? So this is one reason why, while generally classical liberals should be completely in favor of free trade uh, and realists should, I, I think, also be very friendly to free trade because it makes us richer and ultimately being richer is allows us to be more stronger less and more uh, and more secure. Uh, there are some things in which you don't want to become dependent on others on. And even Adam Smith recognized this, so it's not a violation of like the you know the kind of gods of classical liberalism, or at least or at least diversify. Like, and I'm thinking specifically of energy, and I didn't know this until we spoke this summer. But uh, Europe has, through the European Union, has effectively implemented something called the Green Deal, mm-hmm. which is almost exactly like what we call the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there's there's evidence that Putin himself was financing anti-fracking things, anti-fracking interests in the UK. So for whatever reason, Europe, um, mm-hmm. starting with old Europe, countries like Germany, have, have basically eliminated their ability to either produce or import energy from multiple sources, particularly fossil fuels. And to me, that I, I would argue that that almost finances Putin. It gives him the resources he needs and and not a monopoly but a but a market position in terms of gas well, yeah, and oil. Well, yeah, it can create dangerous dependencies. Yeah. But again, let's let's be clear about what we're talking about here because in a in a pure non-Adam Smith but even more radically uh, free trade approach, uh, one wouldn't worry about these dependencies in a kind of pure economic model, right? But that's why as, I, as long as there's not barriers to entry cuz it, sure. it it's 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 one thing to um, buy oil from Russia. It's another thing to make it virtually illegal to produce it yourself yeah, or, sure. or buy it sure. from other people. But I'm even talking about like, so let's just say that the laws of economics were such that there was a single monopoly producer of main, you know, kind of large airframe, um, uh, you know, uh, planes, right? Uh, and it just happened to be that... that um, uh, in, name your country, right? Either either it's Airbus. Let, let's say Airbus is, is the place. Now, again, there are allies, so maybe it wouldn't be as as pernicious. Uh, but if if the kind of normal working out of China. the market yeah. meant that China was the was the best producer, lowest cost producer, it had a comparative advantage in producing these types of airframes, it would still be valuable, a la Adam Smith for us to domestically produce those because we don't want to have a dangerous dependency on things that relate to security. Um, and I think that's probably a difference between those who are, I think, um, Smithians in the matter and those who are kind of ignoring the realities of the nation state system that actually exists today, whether it's justified or not, it exists and it's a constraint that we have to deal with. And again, as a, as a realist, the, these, these constraints are things that I think have to be inputs into our model about how to approach our grand strategy. Like, I mean, on the other end of it, a constraint like nationalism means that if we have these grand plans to democratize a place, 
the people that we are trying to democratize might not appreciate that. Yeah. Right. We and, and again, I, I'm a feminist in the sense that I, I, I think that, you know, women can make great contributions to the world. We would be horribly misguided, you know, not to have 50 percent of, of the species contributing as they see fit maximally in the in our economy. Uh, but, uh, but we forget sometimes that the other side doesn't always agree with those things. And so when we try to do these things in another place, even for their own good, as we see it, there's a kind of constraint of nationalism and of their own self-interest that pushes back against that. And we have to acknowledge that as a constraint. Mm -hmm. And the problem of a kind of liberal idealism about foreign policy is that it tries to wish away these constraints of nationalism, uh, of the balance of power of the nuclear revolution, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and this is why I kind of uh, have an instinctual rejection of a kind of totalizing theory uh, of cosmopolitan libertarianism, because we live in a world that unfortunately states are major players, or in some cases, unfortunately. And so their interests, the, their advantages, the constraints we face, these all play into a very dangerous brew if we don't consider them. And that's essentially the story of American foreign policy over the last 30 years, isn't it? Is a kind of hubris about about our ability to to overcome constraints and then the enemy and the adversary in the world getting a vote and voting quite differently yeah. and us getting bloody noses over it. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So, um, as a realist, I'm going to challenge your realism mm-hmm. because you're talking about um, uh, you know, China having a monopoly on, on military planes. If it did, it was If it did, it's, it's strictly hypothetical. Yeah. Um, and I immediately started thinking about the Jones Act um, as, as a student of public choice policy. And of course, the Jones Act was passed right after World War I, right before right. World War I, to make sure that Americans had American-made ships. Right. And it's still there. It serves absolutely no purpose except right. to feed the special interests that were created right. by that good and you know let's say as it was mm-hmm. a good in, I don't know if it was a good intention policy right it might have been special interest but even assuming it yeah. was right um, that the, pro, the 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 challenge with realism is that the 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 in, built in inevitable failures of political decision making it's not driven by what's right or wrong it's not necessarily mm-hmm. driven by what works and what doesn't it's driven by special interest politics that that create right. things like um never-ending wars yeah so what i what i would say is that that, that um uh, you should always reach for your figurative or literal holster when people are making the claim that our national security demands yeah right and i say that as a realist who sometimes believe our national security demands right so for example you know i'm a pretty free speech absolutist but i don't think the idea of like newspaper publishing troop movements during war would probably be you know a a great thing uh the question is how you deal with it but again um and when it comes to the like something like the jones act look People try to use national security justifications for their particular interests, and we ought to be extremely wary of those. And that's why we should demand— They're sort of airdropped into almost every argument. And we should demand that people show their math, so to speak. Yeah. So on something like the Jones Act, which is just—it's harmful to America. It's not good for us, uh, and we should be wary of those types of things demand that people tell us, okay, explain exactly how it actually tears up to our security. Yeah. But that's the same thing when it comes to say Ukraine or or in the nineties, the Balkans, or in the two thousands, all these, you know, wars we fought. Uh and again, I, I think that some wars are necessary to fight. Uh America has had very few it needed to fight. Uh the Iraq war is obviously one that isn't, but you heard people up and down threat inflation, our security demands, 
Uh, and then, you know, one of the first casualties of, of war, preparing for war, or making the case for war is, is oftentimes the truth. And so you heard people talking about, well, there was a secret meeting in Prague between Al-Qaeda and the Iraqi government. Yeah. Yeah, right. And, and, and we ought to be extremely skeptical of that. But I don't think that's inconsistent with, with realism, right? We, I mean, a, a realist uh, is more than happy to try to show his math about why something is necessary from a security standpoint. Um, especially because if you're making arguments that are not consistent with our security, but are actually for pecuniary interest, you're actually undermining your your prosperity and your uh, ultimately your security by doing that. And so bad economic ideas, even under the guise of national security, are still bad and realists should reject them. And fortunately, economics as a science can help us better understand what are the good economic arguments and the bad ones. And and I was actually heartened several years ago, speaking of this, is when um, Admiral Mike Mullen, who is at the time was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right? And he was asked, what's, what's our biggest security threat? And I feel like I kind of failed. I've been studying this my whole life and I would have given a less good answer than him. I mean, I might have said something like, well, there's a lot of threat inflation in the world and we shouldn't get you know, too exercised. But if you're asking me to rank order threats, even if they're not as big as other people think, here's what I would think they would be like, look, terrorism is still a threat. It's not something that we should change, you know, our whole domestic society on. But yeah, we ought to be careful about that. And and I think we should use special operations forces to go after uh, terrorist groups that have an intent and a capability to harm us. And then I might have said China because it's a long term strategic adversary. But Mike Mullen gave a better answer. What he said is our greatest national security threat are debt and deficits. Yeah. I'm like, man, stumped, right? This That's a fantastic answer. Every uh, every Tea Party activist I knew, including myself, would quote General Mullen on this. Because, Admiral. Admiral. Yeah. Um, and because we were, were in the midst of this fight, you remember at the height of the Tea Party, there was this mechanism by which Republicans had nominally agreed to trim defense spending, mm-hmm. and Democrats had not only agreed to um, trim domestic spending. A positive log rule. And it, it and this was unusual, right? right. And, and turns out it was extremely unsustainable because um, Tea Party Republicans, with a few important exceptions, ultimately caved to the idea that, that we needed to fully fund um, the wars. Right. And of course, wars are a black hole. Oh, and, and it, particularly if you want to fund the war on terror, that's 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 a money pit that never ends. So it was the Achilles heel of this entire movement to be fiscally responsible and to, to meet that um, what what Admiral Mullen said that, like, if we want to be safe and we want to be secure and we want to be strong as a nation, we better get our fiscal house in order. Absolutely. So I feel like there's, and again, I'm sliding into, I think, very realist arguments that would yeah. go back to Washington about about not spending you don't money, money you don't have on, on wars that you can't afford. And, and that oh, aren't necessary. And aren't necessary. Right. And oh, by the way, you're going to make the world less safe if you do that. Um, and this kind of goes into um, your tradition at AIER because how do we finance unnecessary wars? We, right. we print money. Exactly. Well, we, we borrow money. Yes. And then when we can't borrow any more, more money, we start like uh, asking the treasury to help us out. Yeah, and we ultimately undermine our own strength. And, and that's what I found so great about Admiral Mullen's comment there is he hit the nail on the head, right? If, if, you're, if you want to you know, conform to a kind of higher realism, you need to make sure you have an economy that can support at a, at a relatively low percentage of GDP, your safety. Now, I hate the idea of, of spending, def- having defense spending correspond to our percentage of GDP. It's a terrible idea. Remember 4% for freedom? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that was a bad idea because uh, the way you should approach def- defense spending is, okay, what are the ends mm-hmm. of our state, right? What do we need to do? And I would argue there's three kind of primary ends, right? It's our territorial integrity, right? Our safety here at home. It's the conditions of our prosperity, not the prosperity itself, right? Government shouldn't be spending, you know, shouldn't be making sure everyone's wealthy. It's not even possible, right? But the conditions of our prosperity, right? Keeping uh, sea lanes open, making sure that our satellites in space are safe, right? Those are the kind of conditions, making sure that strategic choke points are open for our trade, right? Those are conditions of our prosperity. And then thirdly, our liberal democratic system here at home, right? We ought to we ought to, you know, one of our key national interests is to make sure that we, for example, don't lose sight of the fact that the reason why we have security is because it's in the service of the liberal polity that we want to live within, that we think is just. And so that means, for example, that 
one of the dangers of having a kind of uh, security surveillance state in the name of safety is that you actually undermine liberal democracy in many ways. So again, those are the three kind of primary interests. And then you say, okay, what's the nature of the world? What's the nature of the constraints? What's the nature of the threat environment? Uh, and then what are the types of means that we can employ consistent you know, with the trade-offs we have to make about making sure we don't steal all, you know, kind of kill the golden goose? How do we how do we defend our, how do we create security knowing that absolute security is impossible, right? That's the kind of mature way of doing it, not saying like, oh, we should spend every year four percent of GDP on national defense because that's some kind of golden rule. And they would argue back saying like, no, it's just to make sure that we're not underspending. And oh, four percent. If you look historically, we, you know, we could afford that. No, like, uh, uh, you know. It, but by the way, it's almost sounding good right now, like to get back to to something <laughs> that ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, again, like like there are there are good reasons for rules, like in monetary policy, like the right. Taylor rule is better than discretion. Um, but look, in, in national defense spending, we don't want to make a budget outside of the reality. Yeah, it, does, it doesn't make sense to, to set no. that kind of a rule. But it, And you it, also know you're going to break be... it if you actually want to. Yeah. Right? That's the problem with these rules. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we fight the Iraq war and, and uh, it goes sour yeah. and we're going to throw out some of the old rules. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you... You need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. So I'm, so. I'm going to hit you with a hot take thing. So you retweeted. Sure. Um, this was one of the most shocking things that I've read on Twitter in a while, and that's saying something. Mm -hmm. But you, you said something about a tweet from our good friend David Frum. Ah. Oh. Um, who who thinks I, we're unpatriotic uh, conservatives? Yeah, right? yeah. You're um, what what's what's the worst thing he calls us? Uh, Putin stooges, I guess, is what he called Rand Paul. Yeah, it's it's a it's, for, it's, for asking yeah, it's for some sort of accountability on the zillions of dollars we were sending over there. But anyway, um, uh, the context and everyone knows this story. But Elon Musk has been providing um, basically uh, free internet coverage through Starlink. I think mm -hmm. that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, for quite some time now, and um, he had the audacity to suggest that that World War III and nuclear winter was a bad idea, and some Ukrainian official told him to go f himself, and he tweeted out, um, "I can't afford to do this for free anymore. Someone's got to pay for it." Mm -hmm. And David Frum says. Um, it was always unreasonable and is becoming unwise to expect Elon Musk to provide internet to Ukraine for free forever. Western allies should pay. And the U.S. should have a plan ready to nationalize Starlink fast if, if Musk cuts off Ukraine's connection to advance his political agenda. So that to me was sort of neoconservatism in a nutshell because you could always come up with a rationale, a national security rationale to steal somebody's company and to nationalize some industry. And I, th I think that's a cautionary tale for um, how far they're willing to go in the name of this this grandiose vision they have for, yeah, and, for and reorganizing the world. Right. And, and my response to things like this always is like, it's almost like, uh, you know, you destroy liberalism to save it because they ostensibly are making some of the case. And again, they're, they're throwing a lot of things on the wall to see what sticks to defend this approach to the Ukraine, yeah. to Ukraine. Um, but, uh, uh, but ostensibly some part of it for a guy like David Frum is, is that this is a Manichaean struggle between liberalism and uh, the forces of evil. And I think you could accept the fact that Putin's Russia is not our cup of tea. It is not consistent with the classical liberalism that you and I share. Um, but that doesn't mean that all means are, I think, are on the table, particularly given that the administration has already said that this doesn't implicate vital national security interests. I mean, if this deeply implicated vital national security interests, probably David Frum thinks they are, then, then we, we should be thinking more seriously about entering the war formally and have troops on the ground. Yeah. 
Now, fortunately, the case is, is that Ukraine does not implicate. The Biden administration is correct about this. But if it doesn't implicate vital national interests, we, we shouldn't even be thinking about the idea of nationalizing companies for such a struggle. I mean, it's not even necessarily smart to nationalize countries when you do have vital national interests implicated, right? Particularly if you care about what I said before, which is our third national interest is our liberal democratic system here at home. You know, we don't want to, you know, kind of uh, burn the village to save the village. Right. And, right. and, and you know, but, you know, look, y- y- uh, this is a great thing, especially to, to keep our energy up here at the end of the day, uh, is to bring up David Frum and neoconservatives, <laughs> right? I mean, look, uh, the slanders that they have, 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 have uh, trotted out against people who love their country, uh, like Senator Paul, I have no doubt about his love of country. Uh, and yet people like like from and, and Liz Cheney and others are always wanting to question his patriotism and question the patriotism of anyone who wants to do anything less than they want to do in the world, oftentimes for an agenda that is largely other regarding as opposed to self-regarding, meaning it may be about uh, altruism as opposed to America's national interests. And yet somehow the, the cries of traitor of being a traitor or being a stooge for another regime are launched against the people who have America's national interests first, second, and third in their preference order. It's absurd. These people should, I mean, I'm a, I'm not a believer in, uh, in, uh, you know, engaging in private coercion. Uh, but one could be forgiven for thinking that when people call others traitors that, you know, uh, you know, that, that uh, uh, you know, some maybe some of those old fashioned martial virtues of like, let's take it outside might be more appropriate. <laughs> I mean, it's if you calling out people as traitors and not only that is it, it's like it's serious slander for people, uh, you know, to say that. And it's tossed around like crazy. But what about people in the armed forces like myself? I mean, I oppose the United States getting into a war with Russia over Ukraine. I think we're spending way too much money on Ukraine, uh, given uh, the the um, lack of vital national interests that are implicated here. Uh, and yet uh, I'm a patriotic American. I love our country. I put our interests first, second and third. Uh, and, and, you know, if people want to and people use these, you know, say these things, it's absurd. Right. Uh, and it's and, and it should not be tolerated in, in honestly in polite society. And so when David Frum talked about unpatriotic conservatives back in his famous piece he wrote around the time of the Iraq war when he was shilling for that, he should have been called out even by people on that side and say, look, that's way too far. Um, you know, it, it, you could have a different conception of the national interest and what's demanded without being considered to be, you know, a traitor. It's 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 a, it's it it it. Irritates me to no end, Matt. As you could probably, tell. I, I knew it would, which is why I brought it up. Um. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it, but again, it, what I find so ironic about it is that the people making these cases, you could you could try to slander them by saying that they're they're too nationalistic. Mm-hmm. That might be fine. You might say like, well, like you're you're too focused on American national interests. You put them first, second, and third. You know what about? Other regarding interests or what about the liberalism? Like, why don't you, you know, care about the state of liberalism in the Donbass? I mean, I do. I would love to see the Donbass to be more liberal. And uh, but that's not in the cards. Uh, but nor do I think when we're counseling uh, uh, the state, uh, should we counsel them to do things even in the service of our ideals that might actually be harmful? Uh, because I do think that the national interest has moral dignity. And part of that is because. Uh, I'm an admittedly a, a statist classical liberal in the sense that I'm not an anarcho-capitalist. I think that a limited government that 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 serves uh, to protect our our uh, safety and security is, is justified in classical liberal political philosophy. Um, there's a, I think there's a good reason to have a police department and a court system and a national. Call me crazy, right? Uh, uh, but given that, I think we have to be able to make the case. That you're, on, you're on the very fringe of people I allow on my show. Yeah, sorry. No, but but again, like I think we have to. I mean, there's a question about subsidiarity. Who ought to be the the right locus of that? And I'm more than happy to see like buildings have private security to defend their buildings. That mm-hmm. puts less of a strain on the public coffers. But I think that there is a role for a minimal government. Uh, Nozick thought that. I know he's a crazy status too. Uh, but Nozick, Adam Smith, Milton Friedman, right? right like the, the Hall of Fame of classical liberals agree with this. And again, it's a good argument to have with the, uh, you know, the David Friedmans of the world. About these are that. great arguments to have because we're all 
headed in the same direction because we're so far afield of of any of those goals of limited government or yeah and or that's why we have to be so skeptical of the claims that are yeah. oftentimes made but again for me i don't want to throw the baby out with the with the bathwater. um uh you know but i do think that the national interest um has moral dignity right we we need to defend these basic interests because those are the conditions under which under which liberalism can prosper, yeah. and we can prosper, right? Uh, um, and so again, I think Admiral Mullen was kind of hitting on that, right? We need, you know, going back to kind of AIER, and one of our big things is kind of economic freedom and and monetary. Economics. Yeah, I, I actually it's, want to pivot to that. Yeah, but that's important. For yeah. Getting the, you know, there's a, you know, if you're Ukraine and you're being invaded by Russia, it's a lot harder to think about economic freedom, right? Right. And I think this proves the point I'm trying to make, which is, yeah, sure, we should argue against rampant statism. But I think a classical liberal understands we have to have, we have, there's a role for this. And then we have to be deeply, deeply skeptical about infringements on our freedoms uh, that are used under that rubric yeah. uh, or others here at home. And yeah. maybe that's the good kind of pivot to, uh, you know, to the Cause, freedom cause, agenda, I believe. Yeah, in. like yeah. I, I think there's... Um... I guess we'll call them consequentialist implications of, of freedom and free markets that really matter when it comes to um, loving your country and, and hoping that it's strong if, if it ever does get invaded, if it ever does get attacked. Right. You better be, you better be um, a free market economy. Otherwise, you don't, you don't have the strength to defend that. And that, that's really the, the, the basis of what AIER does is, is really focusing on on how to make a strong economy and particularly how to keep our money from being corrupted by government. That was sort of the tradition of, mm -hmm. of Colonel Harwood. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we, we engage in research and educational programs related to individual liberty, free markets, sound money, limited government, property rights, right? These are the kind of core things that we believe in. Um, and, you know, so we focus largely on kind of three buckets right now uh, at, at AAR. So one is monetary economics. We've been doing this since 1933. Uh, we've cared about the devaluement of our of our of our uh, our money, uh, and we believe that one of the biggest problems out there is discretion of monetary authorities. Uh, you know, either influenced by bad ideas or by politics. Um, uh, you know, these are essentially eroding. Uh, our, our hard-earned wealth. Um, and we forget sometimes that inflation, or not we, but, but the world forgets that inflation is, is something that is caused not by something out of the ether, but is largely caused by poor monetary policy, largely because people fashion themselves to use discretion to want to fine-tune things as they see fit, consistent with their preferences or the preferences of government. And, and this leads to all kinds of problems traditionally. And that's why we favor a more sound money approach. Um, but then the second bucket is, uh, is our economic freedom, right? And, and this is a very traditional thing that classical liberal think tanks work on, and we do too, looking at fiscal policy, regulatory policy. And we try to use the tools of economics, whether it's price theory, Austrian economics, public choice theory, to try to use those as engines of analysis to analyze these things. And then our third is our newest area, which is we calling defending freedom and combating collectivism. And this is an area where we're looking at some substantial threats to freedom in our country today. And we want to make sure that we're not missing those because they do relate to our economy and to economic freedom, right? If you get ESG wrong, that's going to destroy uh, the kind of engine of economic growth that we have in our country, which is the, you know, the kind of private enterprise system. Uh, so we're going after ESG and trying to defend the old fashioned shareholder theory of people like Milton Friedman. Uh, we're also going after DEI, CRT, uh, kind of critical race, you know, uh, um, uh, Marxism, uh, and trying to promote the kind of um, uh, individualism that's at the heart of classical liberalism. We also are we're very worried, not just about these things that have largely been products of the left, but some of the rising collectivism we've seen on the right. So looking at the economic nationalism of, of the uh, Catholic integralists and national conservatives. And we want to push back against that 
um, because economic nationalism and the way they're talking about it is not healthy. I mean, I was at this uh, this ISI conference and they had the Lighthizer speak. And I swear this was the most economically illiterate speech I've ever heard in this town. And this is a town in which there's a lot of economic illiteracy, yeah, as you well say, know, yeah. right? You've been here a long time. This is, the, the, you know, this is not exactly the uh, you know, University of Chicago uh, economics department in 1935 or something, right? A lot of economic illiteracy. And he was, uh, the, it was the most economically illiterate. I mean, he even at one point, I mean, I guess he got the economics right in some sense, but he said, yeah, you know, uh, like uh, rising prices are good because we'll consume less. I mean, I guess he got the economics right. It's true. Uh, but why would we want that? Right. Uh, what is this going to mean? I mean, this is going to mean economic, uh, you know, struggle, not economic prosperity. And yet you hear you hear this. And uh, and so I think that we really need to push back against that. And so we've hired uh, Sam Gregg, who used to work at the Acton Institute, a great institution. But we were really excited to have him to kind of head this up. And he's got a new book out. Yeah, what's the, what's the new book? I'm, I'm going to try to get him on sometime. Yeah, you ought to. I mean, a, a big part of it is looking at the American economy today. And, and what's great about Sam is he knows his economics, but he also understands moral philosophy. Yeah. And that's one of the things that AIER is trying to bring to the table, right, is this is bringing together good economic understanding, right? Um, using the engines of analysis that economics provides, but marrying that to an understanding of history, an understanding of moral philosophy, especially the classical liberal tradition, to make the best cases a positive case for freedom and trying to knock down these arguments that are bad for us, both economically and in terms of our uh, our, our moral dignity as free individuals. Yeah, and and so my audience knows Phil Magnus pretty well. Oh, and, Phil's great. And they sure, I've had Dr. Jay Bhattacharya on the show several times, and um, it was before your time, but mm -hmm. AIR is also um, famous or notorious, depending on who you ask, I think famous, yeah. for the Great Barrington Declaration and, and sticking your necks out when few would. That... Um, so people know that. Where can people find you and AIER? So uh, I'm somewhat active on Twitter, at Will Ruger. And then for AIER, uh, our website, uh, AIER.org. Uh, at AIER on, on Twitter is a great place they can go. Uh, and, you know, we we like to make sure that we're providing fresh content on a regular basis uh, that is that springs from our understanding of economics and freedom. So I, I would recommend you go there. Uh, but also, you know, we want to we want to engage uh, even beyond, uh, you know, our own um, our own kind of closest brothers and sisters, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. We're trying to get out there to spread the message of, of of freedom and good economics broader than that. And so our scholars are really active trying to get out there into the mainstream press to the extent to which it's friendly to it. So uh, my colleague Phil Magnus, for example, has had a couple of great pieces uh, in, in the Wall Street Journal, one on Piketty's bad data on on uh, inequality or, or on, on the issue of equity. Uh, as well as on this definition of a recession. I mean, people keep talking about how like we might have a recession next year. I mean, look, Phil makes the case that, look, by the definitions that we usually use, we're already in a recession. What are we talking about? I mean, I guess there will only be a recession after the elections if Republicans win. Sure. I think that's probably yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, we're, you know, we're trying to be pretty active. You know, one, one thing I think that's important, though, that I talk about combating collectivism uh, and we've talked a lot defensively about like the problems of those who we disagree with. But I think we also need to be making a kind of positive case for why freedom, why business, you know, why free enterprise, why sound money. Um, and I know you agree with me on this, right? You, and, and that's because the vision of the world that I think a proper classical liberalism promotes is a great one for humanity, right? Yeah. And I don't mean in the kind of strictly consequentialist way, that, you know, of like it makes us wealthier. That's that shouldn't be looked down upon. Right. When people talk about we want less consumption like Lighthizer, he's talking about the possibility of less like baby formula, potentially. Mm -hmm. Right. Less, you know, medical, fewer medical devices that can save us, uh, but even fewer things that just might make us happier in terms of like, you know, look, you got a whole bunch of albums here. I'm sure that, uh, you know, having a great Pink Floyd album on uh, vinyl probably, you know, gives you some. Uh, uh, you know, some some cheer. It's objectively valuable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In that case, yeah. yeah. Or, or any prog rock yeah, in my book. But, I'm, uh, I'm usually a, a subjectivist. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like we, we've talked about this quite a bit, the, the idea that, that the way to sell freedom in the market and, and the ability of people to cooperate and, and create things and produce things is ultimately about, about happiness and dignity. 
Right. And and that's where I was going to kind of go with going beyond just the stuff. Yeah. Because I think that if we adopt a crass consumerism, I think that's rife for critique, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because again, like I think you can believe in the the truism that people value things differently, right? That's behind subjectivism without having a kind of uh, moral relativism. Right. But I think the key thing for the positive case for freedom is that it is consistent with respecting the moral dignity of all individuals, which is, I think, at the heart of what classical liberalism mean, and is consistent with a lot of other types of isms. Right. Um, and I think that that that's what's so beautiful about it is that we are that freedom allows people to to uh, be vicious, but it also allows them to be virtuous. To, to kind of paraphrase Frank Meyer, mm-hmm. we can realize our best self if we're free. In in my view, uh, and and I think that that a system that disrespects you so much as to believe that people in Washington or even in state capitals should tell you how to live your life beyond the basics of respecting the law of equal freedom, right? I don't have a problem if I try to swing my fist wildly that the long arm of the law will stop that uh, or that others will use self-defense to prevent it even better, right? Uh, Or even more subsidiarist. Uh, but, But the idea that other people should try to tell you how to live is so disrespectful of our moral dignity. And that's that's ultimately why we should reject it. Right. Uh, Even though, of course, we ought to also reject it because it leads us to be less prosperous. But ultimately, I think we care about our flourishing more broadly. And freedom is such an important condition for us realizing that. And I think that that's the case we need to make better about why state control is harming our flourishing uh, and in that broader, deeper sense. Because otherwise, we, again, fall prey to the, well, you just support free trade because you can get cheap doodads at at Walmart made in China. And how is that good? Well, I think you can make the case for why that's better than the alternative. But I, but I think that we want to be able to say that there's something deeper that freedom um, corresponds with, uh, you know, in, in kind of our, our, our the essence of what it means to be a human. And that's a case we need to make because those who disagree with us oftentimes will couch their arguments that their their way of, of uh, engaging in politics is actually more in correspondence with our flourishing. And I think we reject that, especially when it comes to issues of like virtue, because I, I fully be- agree with Frank Meyer that that sure, we could be habituated or coerced to act in a certain way, but that's not truly being a virtuous man or woman. Uh, and so if that's what you care about, you ought to double down on freedom you know, within the bounds of the law of equal freedom. All right, let's leave it there. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, go to freethepeople.org.